This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. I'd like to welcome all of you to the 2014 Dewey Lecture on Law and Philosophy. Uh, we're delighted today to welcome Axel Honneth, the Jack C. Weinstein Professor of the Humanities at Columbia University and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Frankfurt, as well as the Director for, at the Institute for Social Research in, Frank, in Frankfurt. And uh, I'm not going to do an extended uh, introduction of, of Professor Honneth because I will leave that to Martha Nussbaum. Uh, but what I want to do is tell you a little bit about the Dewey Lecture for some of you who don't have been here over the years uh, and uh, want to know a little bit about how it started. So it was founded almost 30 years ago in honor of John Dewey. Now Dewey's connection to the University of Chicago, of course, was enormously strong. From the university's inception in 1894 until 1904, Dewey was chair of the University of Chicago's philosophy department. And during that time, he founded what came to be called the Chicago School of Pragmatism, an intellectual movement that applied scientific methods to societal problems. In addition, Dewey created the university's laboratory schools in 1896. Now, in 1981, former dean of the law school, Gerhard Kaspar, decided that the law school should have a, a way to recognize Dewey's tie to the university and his contributions to legal theory. He corresponded with philosopher Sidney Hook, then the president of the John Dewey uh, Foundation, and he asked, could we establish a lectureship here in Dewey's name at the law school? Hook agreed and then funded the Dewey Lectureship in Jurisprudence. Now, we have been enormously fortunate to have tremendous philosophers who have been here giving the Dewey Lecture in the past. They include Nobel Prize winner Marta Sen, Ronald Dworkin, Amy Gutman, Richard Rorty, and our own Martha Nussbaum. In addition, John Wolfe's famous paper the idea of public reason revisited was a Dewey lecture and actually was published in our law review. Now, law and philosophy, the Dewey lecture, are incredibly important to our law school. As many of you have heard me say over and over again, that interdisciplinary study is at the core of what we are at the University of Chicago Law School. Wrestling with questions of the very nature of law, the intersection of and the difference between law and morality, normative and prescriptive understandings of our freedoms, obligations, and restrictions under law all go to the very core of legal education. Our law school was founded on the idea that lawyers need to know more than just black letter law. They need to understand the theoretical underpinnings of the very idea of law, and that this makes them both better lawyers and better citizens. And that is incredibly important to us. And now, 
It's my honor to invite Martha Nussbaum, appropriately holding the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Chair in Law and Ethics, to introduce Professor Axel Hahn. Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm really delighted to introduce Axel Hahn. We've been working on this for two years now because he, he was moving and getting a green card and there were all these uh, details to sort out. So finally, we, we have him here. And uh, I won't repeat his, his chair titles, but I will say that it's a long time since we've had a visitor ultimately from, from Germany and from the Frankfurt tradition. Uh, the last one was Jürgen Habermas in, I think, 2002. And so this is a very fitting and exciting follow-up to that. Professor Honet is known around the world for his important work on the concept of recognition, which is a, a, a concept that's important to the theory of justice, but it was really not theorized as part of the theory of justice before Honet's work. In a range of important books, he's explored the idea of political recognition and its connections with ideas of respect and freedom. Uh, I'll just mention some of the important books that he's published in really quite a, a short space of time. So The Struggle for Recognition, The Moral Grammar of Social Conflicts, 1996, Redistribution or Recognition, a Political Philosophical Exchange, which he did together with Nancy Fraser, who's about to appear here next week. So, so that's a coincidence. Uh, then Disrespect, the Normative Foundations of Critical Theory, 2007, Reification, a New Look at an Old Idea, 2008, Pathologies of Reason on the Legacy of Critical Theory, 2009. So he went book every year in this period. The Pathologies of Individual Freedom, Hegel's Social Theory, 2010. The I in the We, Studies in the Theory of Recognition, 2012. And very recently, the book that's most connected with today's talk, Freedom's Right, The Social Foundations of Democratic Life. Now, what also I think is, is very important about Professor Honet's work is that it has had wide influence uh, not only in academic philosophy in both Europe and, and North America, and certainly elsewhere in the world as well, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, but it's also had influence outside the academy. For example, in the international human rights movement, you often hear reference to his work on recognition, and, and not just uh, sort of cosmetic reference, but reference that really shows thought about how to craft a human rights movement that makes the concept of recognition central. And it's the same with a variety of movements, women's movements and ethnic movements, seeking social justice for previously excluded groups. So it's a particular pleasure to welcome one of Germany's leading philosophers and now one of America's leading philosophers. And uh, so he will lecture on three not two concepts of liberty, the idea of social freedom. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Martha. I feel enormously honored to be invited to deliver these John Dewey lectures. I would like to thank uh, Martha Nussbaum, but also the Dewey Lecture Committee at uh, the University of Chicago Law School. 
And uh, a special thank to Erin Wellin, who helped a lot to organize this travel, because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an awful traveler, and I'm afraid of everything, but she, uh, she helped me a lot to come here. So I'm coming from one place in which, uh, in the department, we have a huge portrait of Dewey to the university for which he probably was even more influential than for Columbia University. And I'm very glad uh, to have the chance to speak, uh, to, to present a lecture in his name. Even amongst those of us who are not altogether convinced by Isaiah Berlin's famous essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, it has become commonplace to adopt a distinction which largely coincides with the one he offered. On the one hand, we think that the negative concept of freedom belongs to the culture of modernity, which grants to the individual the widest possible sphere of protection from external intervention in the pursuit of purely personal interests. On the other hand, however, we are just as strongly convinced that individual freedom only truly exists when one orients one's actions according to reasons that one personally holds to be appropriate and in this sense determines oneself. We sometimes adopt a distinction within, uh, within this second positive model of freedom between an autonomous and authentic form and an authentic form of self-determination. This distinction serves to contrast between individual action-oriented according to moral norms and individual action oriented towards the realization of one's own nature and the most individually experienced needs. In the following, I would like to defend the thesis that the bifurcation between a negative and a positive concept of freedom, which has developed under Berlin's influence, is incomplete in a very significant respect. The two models foreclose the possibility that the intentions of an agent can only be formed in reciprocal interaction between multiple subjects and thus can only be realized without coercion by acting together. This idea cannot be captured by the now commonplace notion that individual freedom consists in the realization of one's own already existing or reflexively achieved intentions. Rather, the realization of freedom should itself be thought of as a cooperative process. And only in the course of this process does it become clear which intentions should be realized. I want to proceed first by illustrating with some well-known examples how we must understand such a form of cooperatively realized freedom. This first step should demonstrate that we have experience with this third category of freedom in our everyday lives, but that we lack the language to identify such experiences as a form of freedom. In the second part, I want to recall briefly the philosophical tradition, tradition in which this idea of social freedom, as I would like to call it, has always had a central place. Thus, I hope to reveal that the before-mentioned examples from our everyday life have already been associated by some political philosophers with a third 
separate category of freedom. Only in the last part do I want to delve into the systematic question of whether the model of freedom which I have suggested, by example, in fact, in fact designates a third concept, which does not conform to the tra traditional bifurcated understanding. Here my purpose is not only to describe the respects in which social freedom is distinct from the two other models of freedom, but also to explain why we cannot abandon this third concept in our self-understanding. I begin with an example from our political everyday life in which the exercise of freedom should be easily recognizable. Consider our regular or only occasional participation in processes of democratic will formation, when we join political discussions, call for protests, sign statements, or merely distribute leaflets at demonstrations. What is immediately obvious about such actions is how difficult or even impossible it is to describe them with the traditional category of negative freedom, although we quite obviously perceive such cases as exercises of individual freedom. To be sure, in making political statements of this kind, we make use of a space that is legally protected from governmental interference, which allows us to proclaim our beliefs freely and without fear of coercion. But it is fairly misleading to think of the author of such opinions only as an isolated I, separated from all others, in the way the negative model of freedom suggests. So too is it misguided to think that the action is already completed with the proclamation and thus that the expression of an opinion is the final step in the exercise of freedom. The political belief that is expressed in public statements would be in some sense falsely understood if it were ascribed to the private resolution of the will of a solitary acting subject. Rather, this subject refers in her expression to a chain of earlier statements which she attempts to correct or improve such that she can only appropriately be understood as a member of a previously constituted, self-reflexively given and already present we. This means that the exercise of the free action cannot be regarded as complete with the mere proclamation of her belief. For what the individual proposal aims at and where it finds completion is in the reaction of the addressed we or of its individual representatives who once again attempt to correct or improve upon the beliefs of other participants with their own. This description suggests that the participants in democratic will formation must be able to understand, to understand their respective statements of opinion as intervening with one another in such a way that they cannot avoid assuming a V which they together sustain through their contributions. Although we surely have the tendency to understand participation in democratic will formation as an exercise of individual freedom, such freedom cannot readily be described according to the standard of negative freedom. This is because the three distinguishing elements of negative freedom 
have little plausible application to such cases. The actor cannot be represented as a private subject who formulates the intentions of his actions by himself. Nor is he free in carrying out his action only when other actors do not arbitrarily interfere. And finally, this action is not complete as an exercise of freedom with the expression of his own opinion, but rather only temporarily concludes if the other participants have reacted to it in a rationally comprehensible fashion. The actions of my fellow citizens, therefore, do not place an obstacle to my own free political act, nor do they merely constitute the conditions of its possibility. Rather, their actions are so intrinsically interwoven with mine that it is difficult to speak of an individual act at all. It therefore seems that we can only realize this democratic freedom through a collaborative process in which we understand our individual expressions of opinion as complementary contributions to a common project of identifying a common will. One reason why this cooperative structure of political freedom so easily falls from view may be that we usually think of voting as the standard case of democratic participation. Thus it can seem as though freedom consists in the singular and secluded act of forming a private opinions, opinion about one's own preferences and of secretly recording it with the influence without the influence of arbitrary intervention. This picture of democratic action falsely takes the part for the whole. John Dewey famously railed against this view because he saw that it masked the essential democratic element of participation. A myopic focus on voting fails to recognize that the casting of the ballot is preceded by public discussions, including open media coverage and thus the process of reciprocal influence. Such deliberative discussions are a constitutive rather than, a mere, than merely an incidental feature of democracy. Taken in isolation, the casting of the ballot itself can perhaps be thought of according to the model of negative liberty. But this act is only a snapshot of a much more comprehensive process which is meant to ensure that through appropriate instruments for the exchange of experience and opinion, individual beliefs are not only aggregated but are as far as possible bound together into a rational general will. <coughs> Whoever participates in these processes of identifying the public will can no longer imagine the related experiences of freedom and the absence of coercion according to the standard of implementing private interests with the least possible interference. To be able to formulate one's own intentions, one must be able to take up the perspective of others and accept their potential corrective power. In this way, democratic will formation can be understood as a cooperative undertaking which serves the search for the common good. So as not to create the misleading impression that only democratic will formation resists description as an exercise of purely negative freedom, I want to give another well-known example from our everyday lives, 
which despite, uh, despite its many distinguishing features, shares several common elements with political participation. Personal relationships of friendship and love may also be interpreted as exercises of freedom on the basis of their known coercive quality and the attendant loosening of the boundaries of the self. But they resist descriptions by the standard of undisturbed realization of privately determined intentions. Even the first premise of a negative conception of freedom does not plausibly apply to this case. Someone who is maintaining a sincere friendship or true romantic relationship will understand his action, actions within this relationship as free, but will make his intentions dependent upon the wishes and needs of his companion. Obviously, the free action emerges here not from interests or purposes anchored purely in the will of a solitary actor. But even if the negative concept of freedom were not so strongly associated with the presupposition of an isolated I, it would still not adequately capture the structure of freedom within love or friendship. For not only are the interventions of other persons into one's own sphere of action not felt as limitations, which would indeed be compatible with the requirement that only non-arbitrary inferences can impair the exercise of negative freedom. More than this, the wills of the participating persons are so attuned to and enmeshed with one another that talk of intervention loses its meaning. The limitation of one's own will with, with respect to the concrete other frequently rises to such a level that it becomes impossible to distinguish clearly and definitively one's own interests or intentions from those of the other. The aspirations of both persons overlap not only in certain respects, but permanently interpenetrate each other so that their fulfillment can only be understood as a common concern. Where, however, individual interests are melded with those of others, where mine and yours can no longer sufficiently be distinguished, the freedom of a person should no long, not longer be measured according to whether her own intentions can be realized without arbitrary in interference. It should already be clear that the examples of democratic will formation and personal relationships have more in common than it would appear at first glance. The point at which the negative model of freedom fails is nearly identical in each case. For both democratic participation and personal relationships, it is unclear what one's own will consists in, in respect to which the uncoerced realization of the act of an individual can be measured, and thus whether this will is realized in free action. In the case of democratic will formation, the subject only understands her political actions correctly if she thinks from the concurrent perspective of a we, the permanent renewal of which she contributes to with her own beliefs. <coughs> but because of the necessity of remaining open to other perspectives, the aspect of these beliefs which is truly proper to the individual subject is only something preliminary and tentative. 
The beliefs, therefore, cannot accurately be taken as a stable output variable, variable that is used to measure the unhindered realization of freedom. Something similar is true in the case of friendship and romantic relationships in which the boundary between one's own intention and that of the others even blurrier. Because of the shared perspective of a we, the plans and the aims of the other are implicated in the determination of one's own will, such that the aspirations of both participants become intertwined. Both in such personal relationships and in democratic political life, the negative model of freedom is inappropriate to describe the kind of freedom individuals practice. In these social contexts, freedom consists in an unforced cooperation which assumes a higher degree of consensus concerning the aims of action than the negative model of freedom is capable of accommodating. Sorry. One might object to the argument up to this point that these examples, even if they do not represent negative freedom, can nonetheless be understood in terms of positive freedom. Since we draw upon this second category to clarify certain aspects of our normative culture, by speaking, for example, of moral autonomy, it would make sense to attempt to understand democratic participations and love and friendship in terms of the other model of freedom Berlin had put forward. But this attempt too quickly reveals itself to be an inappropriate for determining the kind of freedom we realize in these cases. With concept of positive freedom, we no longer describe an individual action as free insofar as there are no arbitrary external obstacles to its exercise. Rather, the freedom of an action is understood in terms of its realization of higher ends or values, whether this should mean agreement with moral norms, as for Kant, or the actualization of one's own natural needs, as in the Romantic tradition. As long as we understand freedom, however, only as an activity performed by an individual subject in which it practices a given capability, such as norm orientation or the articulation of needs, then the free character of the activities described in the examples above has not been adequately disclosed. For their distinctiveness consists in the fact that multiple subjects must act for one another in order for each to experience her activity from her own individual perspective as a common practice of freedom. There is indeed some overlap here with the idea of positive freedom insofar as citizens or lovers or friends must orientate themselves to certain ideals, such as the good of egalitarian popular sovereignty or the good of trusting int intimacy, in order to act for one another in the appropriate sense. But it is this for one another which constitutes the entire difference of these forms of freedom from the traditional idea of positive freedom, because in democratic will formation or intimate relationships, the good that is striven for can only be realized when multiple subjects carry out an uncoerced action which reciprocally complement actions which reciprocally complement one another and thus enable free collaboration. 
To be sure, this suggestion could also mean that the difference between positive freedom and the third form of freedom I am searching for only consists in the kind of good pursued rather than in the mode of exercise itself. Whereas in the case of positive freedom, goods and values are searched for which are individual in the sense that they are only realizable on account of individual capabilities, these distinct cases, distinctive cases of freedom, concern the pursuit of goods or values that have a collective character because their realization is only possible through the united efforts of several subjects. Then we will take democratic will formation of friendship or love as representing collective versions of positive freedom, a possibility that Berlin occasionally touches upon in his famous essay, if only in order to discard it because of the inherent danger of its despotic misuse. The reasons for this re- his rejection certainly make it plain that he conceives the collective exercise of positive freedom by precisely the same measure as its individual enactment. Namely, that the members of a homogeneous group must all perform the same action in order to realize in consonance those values and goods the achievement of which is the goal of freedom. But such a picture does not in any way correspond to the kind of freedom we have discerned in democratic will formation or romance and friendship. The participants in these cases do not behave like the members of a group who have been forced into line. To the contrary, they must always renegotiate amongst themselves how they would like to apportion the responsibilities resulting from the shared value orientation and thus assign reciprocally complementary contributions to the common project. The we that must be assumed between citizens or lovers or French, friends is therefore in something totally different from the collective subject Isaiah Berlin had in mind with his idea of positive freedom. In the collective positive freedom Berlin described, one is committed to an ethical end which guides the action contributions of all individuals uniformly. In these cases, in the cases we have considered, participants are indeed oriented towards certain values but must continually renegotiate the form in which common tasks are to be distributed amongst them. Alongside the limitation of his will with respect to those of others, the individual nonetheless retains a right to have a say in how the relevant activities should intervene with and reciprocally complement one another. In democratic participation, it thus becomes clear that the participants in the cooperative production of a common will can always choose whether they want the role of speaker or listener, of demonstrator or spectator. Likewise, in love or friendship, the participants recognize the possibility of motivating one another to take on a new distribution of tasks and obligations. In any case, 
the participants in these examples are involved in the commonly assumed we in a different way than the members of the collective which Berlin imagines as the bearer of a supra-individual process of realizing positive freedom. They retain a right to have a say in how their intentions intervene with one another in the pursuit of the same goal, and thus to behold in the freedom of others a condition of their own freedom. We can therefore provisionally conclude that the collective version of the concept of positive freedom is in apposite to capture the form of cooperative freedom which is evidently performed in the social practices of democratic participation or love and friendship. In these cases, my freedom is grounded upon the unforced intermeshing of our activities. On this basis, I can envisage the other not as a limitation, but rather as a requirement for the realization of my strivings, without giving up the possibility of co-determining the form of this intermeshing. Before I pursue this train of thought further, I first want to examine whether one can find suggestions of this, of such a third social model of freedom in the philosophical tradition. So I come to the, first, to the second step. <coughs> the thesis that the form of social praxis exemplified by democratic will formation and personal relationships constitutes an independent category of freedom has been an in undercurrent in political philosophical thinking since Hegel. Hegel himself believed that the two forms of freedom, which Berlin would later label as positive and negative, did not reach the highest level of freedom which ought to be available to members of modern society. Instead, he conceived of a third stage of freedom, which he called objective freedom, the meaning of which remains contested by scholars. The basic thought Hegel proceeded from is weaved into the terminology of his philosophical thinking, but can be rendered independent of this framework in a much simpler form. If freedom is conceived in the negative sense that there can be no impediments to the exercise of the will in the external world, then it remains for Hegel unconsidered that such subjective intentions can only truly be free when they are independent from causal force and thus anchored in self-posited reasons. Kant, in following Rousseau, had similarly concluded that the will can only be free when its content is determined by rational considerations. Hegel argues that this Kantian view, however, leads to the equally peculiar consequence that there is no guarantee that self-determined intentions can actually be realized in the objective world. From the defects of these two concepts of freedom, Hegel developed a synthetic view according to which the complete idea of individual freedom would only be achieved if the self-posited resolutions of the will can be thought of as furthered or willed in or even by reality. For Hegel, this was possible in those ethical spheres of modern society 
in which the freely chosen intentions of participants intertwine with one another, complement one another, and thus find willed fulfillment within social reality. It is not yet altogether clear from this short summary what Hegel meant to convey with his idea of a third, objective freedom. Here the different interpretations of Hegel depend upon how strongly Hegel is thought to remain influenced by Kant's conception of freedom. According to Robert Brandom, Hegel only socializes the Kantian idea of positive freedom such that the ability of individuals to bind themselves to norms is dependent upon the recognition of a community of others whose recognitive authority is also freely recognized by the individual herself. The resulting reciprocal recognition constitutes the normative horizon in which a subject makes use of his positive freedom to renew the shared cultural potential through her own expressive initiatives. This interpretation converges with the idea of social freedom I have hinted at so far, insofar as the core of the Hegelian idea is understood as connecting individual freedom to the assumption of the perspective of a V. But the freedom which is realized through this participation in a community of subjects, reciprocally recognizing one another's autonomy, is, in Brandom's interpretation of Hegel, understood only as an individual exercise, as the expressive act of the individual who lends a new accent to the shared culture. In contrast, I believe that Hegel understood the freedom made possible by reciprocal recognition as itself a common or cooperative undertaking. This is so for him because only by com complementing each other can the intentions of the individuals achieve the individually desired conclusion. Thus freedom in its objective sense is not something an individual subject can perform on his own, but rather is something he is only able to achieve in regulated collective action with others. I have similar reservations with regards to the profound interpretation which Frederick Neuhauser has given to the Hegelian idea of objective freedom, the subjective dimension of which he attempts to reconstruct as social freedom. According to his interpretation, Hegel sets out in his philosophy of right from the idea that the complete concept of individual freedom must comprise all the institutional requirements which allow the members of a society to articulate their particular identities without coercion in the external form of social roles and thus to accept institutional structures of self-realization. Here too, individual freedom is linked with the assumption of the perspective of a we, which makes it possible to understand specific freedom-enabling institution, institutions as rooted in common interests. But as for Brandon, Neuhauser understands the practice of socially conditioned freedom as an individual act, which if every participant can perform without requiring the reciprocal action of another subject. 
According to my interpretation, however, Hegel is driving at a much stronger intersubjective, intersubjective idea with his conception of freedom. The individual can only realize the freedom which is available through certain institutions when he acts in cooperation with others who, whose intentions make up an element of his own. Not only is it necessary for Hegel that the exercise of individual freedom proceeds from the taking up of the perspective of the we, which either makes possible the constitution of a community of recognition or common commitment to freedom-guaranteeing institutions. In addition, such an exercise of freedom must be undertaken with the expectation that the other members of the community will carry out actions which correspond to my intentions or needs. Only this doubled intersubjectivity, as both a condition and as an end to be produced from my free action, makes it possible to understand why Hegel again and again thought of love as the paradigm for his own idea of freedom. Here, according to the famous formula, one is at home with oneself in the other, in the sense that one can understand the actions of the others of the other as requirements for the realization of one's own self-determined intentions. As the famous formulation to be at home with oneself in the other already suggests, Hegel intended far more with his idea of objective freedom than to identify for therapeutic purposes certain possibilities of unforced and thus free collaboration in modern society. Ultimately, he wanted to construe our entire relationship to the world in terms of the recognition of our own positive ends in the other of the objective reality, and thus also to underscore idealistically our freedom in relation with the natural environment. For our purposes, however, it suffices to limit ourselves to the accomplishment of freedom in the social world, since this is the context with which, which would be elaborated by later authors who would furnish it with new aims. Already in early French socialism, socialism's critique of the expanding market relationships, there was an idea of freedom which can only be appropriately understood with reference to its roots in Hegel's philosophy of right. Unlike the understanding of freedom in classical liberal law, which is charged with the legitimation of purely private interests in the capitalist market, freedom is understood in the writings of Fourier and especially Proudhon as a solidary activity of being for one another as manifested in unforced cooperation between craftsmen. Just as for Hegel, Proudhon suggests that individual freedom must be thought of not merely, and I quote, as a barrier, but rather as a help to the freedom of all others, end of quote. Hegel's concept of freedom appears even more starkly in the early writings of Marx, as Daniel Brutney has shown. The young Marx sketches the image of a social community where the members no longer work against each other, but rather for one another. 
Here we find the guiding idea of socialism, namely that one can only speak of real freedom between social members when the actions of individuals complement one another in such a way that the freedom of the one is the precondition of the freedom of every other. As for his French predecessors, the playful interweaving of action in the cooperation of craftsmen serves as the historical model. According to Marx's conception, the subjects in such interactions are free in a particular way, because each can learn from the other participants that his contributions to the coordinated action plans are acknowledged and seen as necessary and welcome complements to each other's intentions. The idea of reciprocally complementing one another makes it clear how much Marx's cooperative model owes to the Hegelian idea of freedom. The attempt to imagine the social integration of a future society entirely according to the measure of such unforced economic cooperation, namely as a community of subjects working for one another, constitutes, in my view, the core ethical impulse of socialism. Here, the social form of the exercise of freedom, which Hegel only saw at work in individual spheres of modern societies, is carried over without differentiation into the entire society, in which the members are thought of as cooperative partners who reciprocally strive to satisfy the needs of one another. I do not want to go into the difficulties that attended this original vision of socialism, which ignored the requirements of the functional differentiation of modern society. For my purposes, it is only necessary to recall an undercurrent of political philosophical thought in which the idea of a distinctively social freedom was already thought of as valid. This theme can also be seen at play in the thought of Hannah Arendt, who understood democratic action to express the foundational intersubjectivity of human freedom. Whereas for Marx, labor itself was seen as a potential context for social freedom, for Arendt only in the political sphere understood as a realm of public contestation over the common good, are we free? because there the individual sheds his private concerns and must widen his previously egocentric perspective in collaborative activity. While Arendt's concept of social freedom does not originate in Hegel, the same is not true for the last of the representatives of the philosophical tradition of freedom uh, I will mention. The namesake of this lecture series, John Dewey, throughout his life argued that individual freedom is completely falsely understood if it is exclusively understood as a capacity or possession of a solitary subject, solitary subject. Rather, the degree of our freedom increases when we participate in socially cooperative activity because we are better able to realize our intentions and wishes the more various the interactions in which we reckon with the responses and contributions of others.
For Dewey, as for Hegel, the true form for the exercise of individual freedom is represented in contributions to the distributed labor of realizing a common aim. Because in such projects, the realization of my will is also intended by others. I thus want to conclude my short reminiscence of the largely forgotten tradition of social freedom with a citation from Dewey in which the underlying idea of social freedom is beautifully expressed. And this is from, from the public and its problems. Liberty, according to the American pragmatist, and I quote, is that secure release and fulfillment of personal potentialities which takes place only in rich and manifold association with others. The power to be an individualized self making a distinctive contribution and enjoying in its own way the fruits of association. End of quote. The, I come coming to my third and last step. The adherence to Isaiah Berlin's conception, of, conception would surely object to this plea for a third social concept of freedom on the grounds that it has the fatal propensity to confuse the value of freedom with other ideals shared by humanity. Just as little as we should surreptitiously smuggle the goal of social justice into the concept of individual freedom, we may, we may not underhandedly furnish it with the aim of coexistence in solidarity. For both efforts would ignore the irreducible pluralism of our values and deny the possible conflicts between them. In this last part of my lecture, I want to forestall this objection by demonstrating that the common value in the before-mentioned forms of relationships of solidarity can best be understood in terms of social freedom. If you look back once more on the previously presented examples of social freedom, democratic will formation, love and friendship, and finally, for socialists, economic cooperation, the first remarkable element is that the participating sub subjects must understand themselves as members of we without, however, losing their individual independence. To be sure, the actions they want to carry out are bound up with the assumption of complementary actions on the part of others, which demonstrates the reciprocal taking up of the perspective of the we. But this, is, this in no way suggests that they together constitute a collective which acts like an enlarged eye. With Philip Pettit, we can label the social ontological position by which this intersubjective exercise of freedom can best be grasped as holistic individualism. This concept assumes that the realization of certain human capacities requires social groupings and thus entities that can only be described holistically. But this does not in any way preclude the existence of independent individuals. 
Why, nonetheless, should individual actions that presuppose a community of cooperative subjects be understood as a particular class of freedom? What is so distinctive about such unforced intertwining of actions that makes it justifiable to introduce a new category of freedom alongside the existing models of negative and positive freedom? Here, in my view, Hegel and Dewey point in the direction of an answer. Both are of the opinion that the distinctiveness of the reciprocal process of unforced intertwining of ends lies in the fact that the contribution of each is, ex each is experienced as willed by the other. In contrast to all other actions, which can either be understood as negatively or positively free, this class of cooperative actions shows that we can each assume the consent of the other and thus can carry out our own action with a consciousness of unforced responsiveness. Not only is there no expectation of arbitrary interference from partners to the interaction. More than this, one can trust that what one freely does will also be freely wished by the other or all other participants. In more systematic terms, the uncoerced nature of a communicative action is here increased because both sides know of each other not only that they perform a freely chosen action, but also that the carrying out of this action fulfills an, an autonomously generated intention of the other. Hegel emphasizes above all the cognitive side of the exercise of social freedom as it should exist in the reflexive structure of such a commonly, commonly shared knowledge. Dewey much more starkly stresses the effective side in the enjoyment of experiencing how one's own actions are seen by others as preparing the way for compl completing their own ongoing actions. The exercise of such a form of freedom certainly requires, as already indicated by the accompanying consciousness of a we, that the participants pursue common aims or values, because these common aims and values require them, informing their own intentions, to take the intentions of the others into consideration. Every one of the participants limits himself to the carrying out of such actions which he knows will contribute to furthering their shared aims. Whereas positive freedom is related to the assumption of a reflexive act of self-determination or self-articulation, social freedom is bound to this assumption of the formation of a common will. Where such a common will is not present and the perspective of a we cannot be taken up by the subjects, it is not possible to form in their consciousness an agreed-upon scheme of cooperation which would allow them to act for one another through their complementary contributions. To this extent, the idea of social freedom, unlike the concept of negative freedom, but like the positive concept, is a selective category of human freedom. It does not designate a general, unconditional capacity of subjects, but rather one which is bound to the existence of certain 
social conditions, namely belonging to a community of ethically like-minded members. This assumption of membership in an ethical community cannot, however, be misunderstood to mean that the participants have completely lost their capacity for personal initiative and independence. Why this cannot be so can now be more precisely formulated because we have learned that in the case of social freedom, one's own contributory actions must fulfill the autonomously, autonomously generated wishes or intentions of one's fellow participants. This assumption can only remain valid so long as I concede to the other the right to place the negotiated scheme of cooperative action into question when her individual needs or interests positions have changed. Because such a claim must be reciprocally acknowledged so that all participants can understand their contributions as fulfilling the autonomous wishes of others, the exercise of social freedom must be bound to the assumption of the right of every other to co-determine the commonly practiced scheme of cooperation. This right to have a say, moreover, cannot itself be understood according to the standard of negative or positive freedom, as though another form of individual freedom protruded from outside into the exercise of social freedom. What the participants invoke when they place their previously agreed upon scheme of cooperation into question is the result neither of a purely private consideration of interest nor of purely individual self-determination as Kant had it in mind. Rather, they discover the content of their will against the normative background of jointly entered responsibilities in order to check whether their will remains in agreement with the negotiated scheme of cooperation. The difference here is that the participants in this process of discovery do not proceed from an ethical null point as suggested by the models of negative or positive li liberty, but rather from the acceptance of responsibilities they already have with regards to others in the pursuit of common aims. Thus, they will only bring to the table suggestions for the adaptation of the scheme of cooperation, which appear necess necessary in light of their changed needs or interests, to the extent that these are compatible with collectively settled goals. The right to have a say with participants possess in which participants possess in regards to the distribution of burdens and responsibilities in romantic relationships, friendships or democratic communities is not externally imposed, but is rather an intrinsic element of the social freedom that they together enjoy in such relationships. These considerations lead into the last point of my lecture in which I want to come back to the question of whether the suggestion of a third social model of freedom commits the mistake 
of confusing the value of freedom with the value of solidarity. Such a reproach immediately suggests itself because the participants can only allow their intentions seamlessly to intervene with one another in so far as they together strive for the common goal of solidarity grounded in trust, whether this takes the form of sexual intimacy in love, the reciprocal support of friendship, or the egalitarian elaboration of a common will in a democratic community. The reason why this works for all contributors, so the objection runs, is the unified realization of the good of solidarity and not as it would look like to be as I would like to believe the value of a particular kind of freedom. However, this objection requires more information about what the value of solid solidary cohesion should truly consist in. And thus one confronts the two difficulty that although one can, one can identify such positive experiences as reciprocal trust or mutual aid, this does not serve to explain the special quality of solidarity, the special quality such solidarity constitutes for us. What difference would it make if the various forms of relationships of solidarity only drew their value for participants from the fact that they constituted different variants of social freedom. Then that which makes love, friendship and democratic collaboration worth striving for could not simply be explained by reference to the good of solidarity. Rather, solidarity would only draw its value for us from the fact that it allows us to exercise in different ways a form of freedom in which others are not experienced as in the, us as in the usual case as limitations, but rather as conditions of the possibility of forming and realizing our own intentions. We strive for relationships of solidarity not for their own sake, but rather for the particular kind of freedom which they embody in various forms. What attracts us to experiences of solidarity and what makes these kinds of relationships worth striving for is an experience which is precluded in other forms of social life, namely to see in the reflection of our own intentions and desires in the complementary intentions and desires of our counterparts that we can only realize them by acting for one another. These considerations allow us to conclude that we are not able to assess the value of solidarity uh, of solidary relationships without reference to the positive experiences of social freedom. But more than this, the idea of social freedom represents the overarching evaluative concept for the special cases of relationships of solidarity. For what makes the experience of solidarity valuable for us can only be explained with reference to finding oneself again in others 
which is what is meant by the idea of social freedom. Social freedom is related to solidarity like the type to the token. The various forms of solidarity are empirical manifestations of that which makes acting for one another into a human good. Then, however, the objection no longer obtains that the idea of social freedom falsely confuses the value of freedom with that of solidarity. Precisely the opposite is the case. We are totally unable to comprehend the value of certain social forms of being together unless alongside the concept of negative and positive freedom we have at our disposal a third concept of freedom which makes it clear to us that we strive for such forms of being together for the sake of experiencing the complete absence of coercion. The distinctiveness of the third form of freedom is a complete withering away of all hindrances which the intentions of other subjects generally pose for me. Only here do I find in the social world a sort of home which, already, which Hegel already knew could only exist where I'm at home with myself in others. Let me conclude, therefore, by noting that under the historical conditions of the increasing juridification and economization of our culture, and thus of the rise of purely negatively understood freedom, it is high time to recover the buried tradition of the ideal of social freedom. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for a lecture that was so rich. And uh, So now let me just tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have about a half hour of questions, and then we will adjourn to a reception outside where you'll have about another half hour, 40 minutes to talk to Professor Honet informally. I guess to open the questions, I'd like to invite you to say something about hierarchy and power, because obviously in all these social relationships where there is reciprocity, there are also differences of power, and Hegel's example of love uh, invites us to think well, yes, those wives uh, could consent, but really, how free were they? And so, so I'd like you to just talk about that and work, workplace relations, political relations. What, what degree and type of asymmetry is enough to make something unfree uh, in your third type of freedom? Yeah, good question. Uh, I, I would say there is no... A historical answer possible to that question. Mm. I mean, that's that's an Hegelian answer, which means um, we have we have these ideas. Yeah, we have the ideals of love, friendship, probably also economic cooperation. We have the ideal of democratic will formation. We know that in the historical exercise of these ideals, from the beginning. There were a lot of power relations, so that the situation of these ideals, the, the real practice of these ideals, was far away from what was meant in the ideal. Mm -hmm. Take the 19th century. Yeah? I mean, it's clear that love, 
didn't function like that, as it is described well, here. Well, they didn't even have an ideal of, of true equality. Maybe Mill did. This is, no, this, this, that's, that's already another question. That I would deny. I think they had the idea. Um, they gave it another interpretation as we are giving it today. I think the idea of romantic love, when it developed in the late 18th century, had already the idea that the partners have to be equal. Fully. I mean, that was the idea. But the understanding or interpretation of what equality means was very different from ours. Yeah. Yeah? So my answer would be, this depends on nothing else than social struggles, which help us to make the ideal closer to reality. I mean, to bring the ideal to reality. And the fact that we, I mean, these struggle, social struggles are performed, I think, with, with regard to the ideals, yeah, in the different spheres, yeah? I mean, so women were fighting for more equality, less power within families or marriage in the name of love. That's my, that would be my ah, interpretation. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Well, we'll do this more dinner. Corey. Thank you. Thanks for the lecture. Um, I wanted to uh, ask also about uh, the relationship of equality, or more specifically, democracy and love. Um, the way the argument works is you have to pair these two together within the third conception um, uh, of social freedom. But I guess my intuition is that they come apart in a variety of different ways. Uh, the first way is democratic deliberation is about lawmaking, and the consequence of lawmaking is that I might find myself bound to the laws that I've made when I was a deliberator. That to me at least sounds like it's got the model of the Berlin idea of um, self-mastery or binding myself because I abstract from myself and then bind myself afterwards. Um, and also the relationship of democratic citizens is certainly not one of love towards one another when we're deliberating or arguing or disagreeing, maybe for a common purpose, but in that sense, we're divided in a way that, that looks like we're not when, when we're in love. Um, and so I guess the question is, I mean, how is it, I mean, it's still not quite clear, I see how love fits the, the model of social freedom, but I'm not sure why it is that you can rescue deliberation from, from the traditional Berlinian notion of uh, binding oneself uh, and putting it in, in the category of love. I mean, I guess the final, the third instance is, I mean, I think you know, in the, when Mar the early Marx is talking about love, it's very tied to the idea of spontaneity and spontaneous action. And this is, again, another difference that deliberation looks like it's deliberate, it's not spontaneous. It's something that we're doing in a kind of controlled way. How do you bring those? Yeah. Um, th this is, I mean, a lot of that is depending on how exactly to describe the, 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 the substance of democratic reformation, yeah, of deliberation. And you used again a language which I think is not sufficient to describe what I least take being the central element of democratic will formation and participation. You described it as if there are uh, individual participants which all have to bind their own will to 
certain norms. And they have to do that individually. I mean, that's the whole Berlin idea. And I mean, by, I mean only by their self-binding capacities they can together deliberate. Yeah? Which means, I think, that the substance of democratic will formation is, again, the individual able to do something upon him or herself. Whereas I believe if you stress the participatory element, I mean like Dewey or others, it becomes obvious that this self-binding is somewhat a misleading idea because it's not that I binding myself to a norm. It is much more so that I leave it open and very flexible during the process of deliberation to which norm we together probably should bind us together. I mean, that's more the Rousseauian model, yeah? I mean, if Rousseau, I mean, Rousseau is a difficult case, uh, <laughs> so leave Rousseau aside. Um, at least that's a Dewian model of democracy. That's probably the Habermasian model of democracy, um, where it is much more a, 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 a joint enterprise. I mean, I, I just read this uh, really wonderful article on uh, democratic practice by Benedict, by, by Elizabeth Anderson, which is especially stressing that point. And I think, I mean, she's not using the notion of social freedom, far away from that. But the way she is describing participation is that we don't act there as fully autonomous, I mean, in that sense, autonomous subjects, that we make our own will formation and the formation of our opinions somewhat uh, independent from others. It's much more flexible when you have the idea of participation. And therefore, I think, I mean, I see the difference between love and democratic will formation. They are obvious. But, uh, but I think, no, the structure, I'm interested in the structure, whether it's not a similar structure which we can find there. And that's what I tried. Second, too, 
selective, you said selective concept. Yeah. The way you explained this, as I understood it right, was that it was not, didn't describe an unconditional capacity or you know, relation among subjects, but something that has conditions. And um, I have a certain difficulty sort of comprehending freedom as such as something that has conditions. <laughs> Actually, I mean, and so um, I was wondering. I mean, it might have conditions in this in the way in which sort of thought has as its condition the brain. You know, I mean, that it's a condition of thought that there is a brain, but it would be misleading, I think, to say that human beings have the power to think on the condition that they have a brain. Uh, so, so it, it may be the case, you know, that of course there are conditions for social freedom. But those may be, as it were, as unconditional to human existence mm. as that of which they are conditions. With regard to the, f I mean, with regard to the first, I, I, I think I would have another interpretation of Hegel, and that's a long story. Yeah, I think the interpretation of Hegel you gave of his concept of objective freedom is for me. Kind of version of the of of Brenham's interpretation of it, namely that that kind of freedom Hegel has in mind is a socialized version of Kant's concept of autonomy, yeah? where it is not the 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 norms to which I bind myself are norms which are not somewhat created by me but are norms, let's say, which are administered, that's Brandon's notion, by a collective, yeah? by a group. So I bind myself, the, the, whole, the, the whole picture Kant is presenting then would be wrong, and I think it is misleading, yeah? that it is myself who either creates norms uh, to bind him or herself to these norms. So it, it should be a much more socialized picture where objective means or social means that freedom consists in the capacity to recognize um, the authoritative community. I mean, not to recognize, to Freedom means to act in such a way that I can recognize and be recognized as a member of such a community which is characterized by certain moral norms. And then the no notion of positive freedom is described in a different way. But this is then only another version of positive freedom. And I think the, the Hegelian point lies, lies, lies somewhere else. And that's it would be a long question whether I'm wrong with that. I think he stresses the fact, if you take the examples he has yeah, in the philosophy of right, he stresses the fact that when we have these institutions, the, what makes freedom objective or what makes freedom to the highest experience is that these are institutions in which we are acting together in such a way that I can see my own intentions 
mirrored in the desires of the other. And that's always his point. I mean, in all the three chapters he is dedicating to family, not probably in the state, which is another story, but even in the market he sees that. So, and I thought that's the main structure for what he understands as freedom, and then it gets a completely different form, I think. Um, the, the, the second question about conditioned, I mean, what I simply wanted to say is that uh, indifference to negative freedom, which we seem to have at our disposal independent from any kind of social preconditions. The kind of social freedom I'm describing, we only have at our disposal, and we, I mean, we have it as a capacity, but that capacity can only be enacted when, there, when we are uh, participating in ethical-minded communities. That's what I only meant with condition. And that seems to me to be a realistic description. Okay, Rafiq. Uh, yes, so um, this goes back to the question over here, which is virtually what I was going to ask. So I'm going to ask a version of it, but not quite. And it's again about the relationship in the first part of the talk between um, democratic will formation and personal relationships. I mean, it seems to me in the protest case, um, um, so I, I won't take the case of voting, but the case of, uh, of protest, it looks to me like my relationship to other people is, inc is incidental and not intrinsic. It's right. I mean, I'm protesting in order to get a certain end achieved. Um, if I could do it all on my own, great, right? But now, but I mean, it turns out that I can't, so I need other people there sort of um, instrumentally, whereas I take it that if that was the, if that was the way one thought of of love, you'd be getting things very wrong, right? I mean, then it's not an, it's it's not just an instrumental uh, relation. It's like I need to fall in love, and oh, here's another person. Isn't that great? Um, so it's so it seems to me that I mean, so so it's a version of of asking again that there seem to be huge differences even in the protest case uh, between uh, political and personal relationships. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just thinking whether whether I whether my descriptions whether the descriptions um, I gave are inviting these questions, um, <laughs> which which, which still surprises me because I never wanted to say that personal relationships like love and friendship and democratic will formation have more in common than a very formal structure in how here it is a we which we have to presuppose in order to explain the kind of freedom we are enacting, not more. And the, the protest case, I mean, this is a lot of that is depending um, what kind of protest you have in mind. I'm speaking of a democratic community, which means if we speak of protest, it is the protest within a democratic community, a functioning democratic community, not such a form of democratic community in which democratic rights and all the necessary conditions are not given. 
So we speak of a functioning democratic community. In such a community, my protest is takes the form of an, an, an address to another person, to the other side, to change their opinions. And I'm doing that not by taking them as, uh, not by taking me, the group who is, uh, which is protesting, and them against which I'm protesting, as to, I mean, as to opposed groups. I mean, they have to be part of, of the we to which I belong when I understand this protest as a democratic uh, form. And therefore I'm presupposing a we, and my hope with my protest is that they change their opinions. And in that sense, uh, I, I don't know exactly how to describe the kind of freedom which I'm realizing here. For example, I don't think that the positive model here functions at all. Because in the, in the positive case, I mean, I leave aside the possibility that we can think of positive freedom as being enacted by a collective, as I mentioned. I leave that aside. But I don't believe that the citizen who is protesting within a functioning democratic community can somewhat be described after the model of uh, binding him or herself to a certain norm. I, th I think he, I mean, the, if that is understood as an act of freedom, the freedom itself I would describe completely differently. And the way I would describe it would have a lot to do with the way in which I would describe, for example, freedom within friendships. Not saying that f democratic communities are communities which we best describe as friendships, which would be, in my view, completely misleading. Amanda. So I wanted to invite you to say a little bit more about the relationship between the last part of your talk and the, the first part. So in the, in the final part, you described um, the value of freedom as having something to do with um, experiencing a complete absence of coercion, because we are at home with ourselves and we are at home with the other, and we, this kind of feeling we have of an absence of coercion. And that helps us to understand why social freedom is valuable. But in the beginning parts of your talk, you were, you were describing social freedom in a way that distinct, made it distinct from the other two concepts. And you really emphasized creating and or presupposing a we, and especially a responsible we. And at one point, you described that as uh, recognizing the right of others to equally co-determine the negotiated scheme of cooperation. <coughs> Tell me where I'm going wrong if I, if I hear the following kind of uh, argument. It sounds to me like you're saying part of what it is to constitute a responsible we, that is what you need for your argument to make this third freedom a real separate freedom, is to recognize the equal right of other people to co-determine our negotiated scheme of cooperation. So if that's the case, it doesn't, it doesn't immediately, uh, I don't immediately see why that fits with um, experiencing a complete absence of coercion. So can you say a little bit about why we really should think of this as freedom versus 
some kind of commitment to a certain egalitarian mode of uh, collective decision making. Be um, because the, I, th I think that it depends where the right to co-determination, uh, probably a formulation I was using, how you derive that right and how you understand that right and how you place it. And for me, I think, at least that uh, I was after, uh, this kind of uh, right to co-determination belongs to the kind of we we are building in those uh, in, in, in those groups I'm describing yeah in in friendships in love relationships democratic will formation probably economic corporations and so on and so on and so it means I not even would say equality you see I mean I don't need any notion at least at this point I don't what I need is an equal right I mean in that sense a right of all participants I don't know whether I would use the notion e equality here every participant in such a group if it follows if, if it uh, can be described as I'm doing it has a right to co-determination co because the structure of it is that all participants expect from each other that they fulfill the autonomously generated desires and intentions of others. And that means and includes, therefore, that in case one of the participants has makes the experience that his or her needs or desires are not longer responded to because they have changed. It follows from the description I gave because they have to be self-autonomously generated that out of that it follows that they have a right to co-determination. Because the whole, I mean, the, the, the whole condition would not longer, uh, would, would be not long, would not be longer, sorry, my English is now disappearing. Uh, the, the condition that I'm fulfilling uh, autonomously generated need of you would not longer be given when uh, your needs have changed and you couldn't tell me and you couldn't determine me to change our way of cooperation. So it, it comes from within, that's what I wanted to say. It's not so that you have, I mean, a, a kind of principle which is from outside intervening into these kinds of uh, groups or V perspectives. It belongs to explaining how such a V perspective can function to make it clear that internally it belongs to it an equal right. I mean, 
of all participants to co-determine the schema of um, cooperation. And as you reformulated it, it sounded as if this is another version of a principle of equality or something like that. But that's not the point I was after. I wanted to say, if we really want to understand what these kinds of groups are, a democratic community, a friendship, uh, probably a cooperative group of uh, uh, workers working together, we have to understand that it belongs to the functioning of such a group that all have a right to co-determination. And then we can describe best the way in which freedom is experienced here and is realized as a social form of freedom. Okay, I'll give the last question to then Bradney, and then we'll adjourn to the reception. Um, so, welcome to talk. Thank you very much. Um, I think I just need a little bit of clarification about what's involved in the thought for you of people doing things for one another. And what's at stake is whether prior to the actual working out of a certain process of interaction, we can specify um, something about, um, for instance, what institutional arrangements might have to look like. Um, so let me give, I, I, I hope this example will fit with this idea of a certain kind of freedom, that of a jazz band, and which is not, for me, G.A. Cohen introduced this one as a variant of other kinds of musical examples. Um, but there the thought is that the players operate um, when jamming against, I mean, with, with one, they offer a certain way of presenting a riff and somebody responds. And there's not exactly an antecedent goal. Um, but they create it together, and presumably if things are functioning properly, each member has, as it were, a right to participate in response to this way. But it would be hard to say in advance what they're going for, nor <coughs> they're not trying to benefit one another precisely. Where there's a notion of um, doing things for one, which would mean the idea that what we are trying to do in politics and economics um, is to benefit one another. Um, if we take that notion of doing things for one, then we might be able to say some things in advance about what institutions must be like or what they must provide for us, because we'll have some, perhaps, vague in general, but still contentful notion of what benefit would be. And so um, the outcome of the process wouldn't be, as it were, wholly undetermined in advance. Um, and I just wanted to get a sense of which, where, your picture of doing things for one another comes down. Whether it's more like a situation where we really can say almost nothing in advance about what institutions should be like because we have to wait for the process to unfold, or whether insofar as we specify the thought that what's the point is the benefit of one another, we can actually bring in some content of the next hand. So I just wasn't clear which 
That's, that's a very interesting way to put things, and probably it would demonstrate a distinction between the different cases I gave, which I underestimated, because my intuition would be to say democratic will formation would be a clear case of uh, the second type, in which acting for or doing for is to benefit others. Yeah? And the benefit others would be describable, probably like Dewey did it in epistemological terms. Yeah? We help us to make our opinions more intellectually reflexive, wide, open, by interacting in a community of deliberative uh, democratic persons. The two other cases, I mean, friendships and love, I think there the benefit model is uh, somewhat more, uh, much more difficult to apply, I think, at least after my intuition. I mean, as long as you don't understand love relationships as having a very specific internal goal like Hegel wanted to have, yeah? namely becoming parents or something like that. But if you don't have that kind of secondary goal, namely a kind of goal, an other goal than that, then being together in a specific form, which gives us experience about ourselves and allow us to be together and find out something about ourselves and enjoy my ourselves reciprocally, uh, this is the goal, let's say. So in that sense, the goal is internal to the practice. Whereas, and that's the jazz I think, yeah? Whereas in the case of democratic will formation, the goal is more external, yeah? We have, we share a certain goal, namely searching the common will. And we are doing it in form of participation and del participatory deliberation because that we found out that's the best way to do that. And then we can think about how to describe the kind of freedom I'm in, I'm, I'm in acting when I'm participating. Um, so that would be a, di a difference between, let's say, two cases which I didn't respect, I have to say. The case of the democratic community, the case of the economic community, on the one side, where you have uh, an, an ad additionally an extra goal, and then the cases of friendship and love relationships where the practice in itself is the goal. So it, it's more the Aristotelian case of practice. Okay, well, with that, I'd like to thank you very warmly for this terrific lecture and uh, welcome everyone to the reception. Thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.